Hello and welcome to the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. I'm Mel Luizu and together with my guests, we explore all different aspects of leadership in higher education. With inspiring stories, practical tips and a little bit of fishiness, this show will help you dive deep into the leader you are and climb high, unleashing your power and potential. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't. Today is the first ever guest interview on the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast. And given that this show is focused on leadership, it seemed fitting that I take you back to the start of my leadership journey. So often in life, we meet someone who will have a massive impact on us. And this is certainly true of my guest today. I can't believe it. We met almost 20 years ago and he turned my world upside down and inside out in a really good way. He's a serial entrepreneur, speaker, author and coach. A totally awesome guy. Please welcome to the show, Daryl Scott. Hi, Daryl. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Although now, after that gushing intro, I'm thinking, well, the only way is down from there, isn't it? I'm, I'm excited to be chatting after, because as you said, it's been a long time, isn't it? It's been a long old road. It has. It really has. And to give some context to this conversation, I met Daryl almost 20 years ago when a training officer that I was working with suggested that I go on one of Daryl's courses. And it was a course on NLP. It was a 10-day intensive experience. And it's no word of a lie to say this absolutely changed my life. But for the listeners out there, Daryl, what is NLP? You would explain it so much better than me. The, the dreaded question. <laughs> I, I, I wrote a book and... And uh, it actually it actually says that that's the dreaded question. You know, what is NLP? It's, it's the most tricky thing to define. It doesn't fit neatly and tidily into into a box. You know, in, in a way that some other things do. Uh, but I think over the years that I've learned the way best way to describe it is is to tell a really quick story about how it came about. There were a couple of postgraduate students at the University of California called uh, Bandler and Puslik, who were studying Fritz Perls at the time and uh, had a very different way of empathizing with or making sense of what Fritz Perls did to, to achieve such extraordinary results in therapy and, and all types of communication. And they did it almost by imitating him, almost by copying him. And uh, they did it with such skill that it, that it was really amazing to watch them demonstrate you know, how, how they could be Fritz Perls better than Fritz Perls. And then a linguist, a professor of linguistics called John Grinder found these two chaps and was fascinated by what they were doing and sort of began to put some coding around it. And they created a model of communication that was mainly linguistic you know, in, in terms of its description. And then they went on this journey, guided by some other uh, academics at the time. They went on this journey of finding geniuses and working out what they did and putting it into some sort of code and offering it out to the world. So at, at the end of all of that, you end up with this bucket of, or this mixed bag of profoundly 
effective philosophies and techniques that doesn't really sit neatly or tidily on any given shelf. So most people, you know, have, have a, a glimmer of an idea of NLP is, you know, they may have discussed it and not experienced it. They may have a prejudice towards it from that point of view, because it's, it's not particularly popular in, in some areas, or they may have experienced an aspect of it, you know, and they'll say, oh, it's all about goal setting, isn't it? Or it's, uh, that's the stuff with the hypnosis. You know, and all of these things are sort of true and sort of not true. It's a big mixed bag of profoundly amazing techniques that the application of them is limited only by your imagination, you know, because they're so fundamental to human communication and ways of being that you can apply them to anything, everything from creativity to therapy to business leadership to parenting. I absolutely agree with that because when I came on your programme, I was at the time an operational manager with a relatively small team and everybody else on the program was in HR or training and development. And I, I remember having that different perspective of actually, I just want to be able to engage my team better. And that's what NLP, neurolinguistic programming did for me in that first instance was give me that ability to communicate with a much broader range of people than I ever had been before. And consequently, as a result of that, I saw my career go on a massive upward trajectory where I started managing bigger and more diverse teams. And, and it was NLP that helped me to do that. And without those skills, I don't believe I would have had the career I've had. And now, obviously, in my own coaching practice with my clients, I use a different set of techniques. It is a wonder. So for you, if people are interested in knowing more about neuro-linguistic programming and NLP, how do you think it can help them in their leadership journey? If you were to give one or two sort of top tips, try this, what would they be? How does it help top tips? Well, I think I said earlier, it's the application of NLP is limited only really by your imagination. And I think it's one of those things where we go from one context to another, you know, and, and there's some kind of frame of reference for the activity that we're engaged in. You know, now I'm being a leader, now I'm being a coach, now we're project managing, now we're doing, you know, that for so many of us, you know, we have to switch between leading, managing and doing, which are three fundamentally different things, really. And, and I think NLP almost gives you, it gives you a look at the, the more fundamental aspects of communication and behavior. It's less sort of, it's less bound by those contextual business speak kind of terms and models and diagrams. And it's, it's really about what happens to a human being when you communicate with them? You know, what happens to you? You know, how does that, that two-way street develop and play out? What's really going on when we humans interact with each other and, and, and attempt to help each other out? So, so our other models will, will focus on, on very different stuff. It, it's really interesting that you said earlier that it gave you ability, because I think that's the crucial difference. I learned NLP, it was one of the first things I did on my self-development journey, so I don't really have much to compare it to. And then in subsequent years, I kind of learned psychometrics, and I learned other coaching models and therapy practices and all kinds of stuff, and then kept coming back to NLP as being quicker, more powerful, but most importantly, an emphasis on ability and process. So people say to me, well, does NLP work? <laughs> the answer would be, well, it depends who you do it with. Because <laughs> you know? there are sadly some practitioners out there who 
have an idea of NLP that is a million miles away from what I think is going on. So it's more of an ability. You know, NLP doesn't particularly work, but NLP people who develop the abilities, that works, you know, profoundly. But it is, it, it, there is a lot of skill involved. It's, it's not just a model that if you read the seven steps, then there you go, that gets to the result. And I, I, you know, spent a lot of time learning other methods or thoughts around, thought processes around coaching. I have a professional certificate in coaching. And it's great. Those sort of coaching models give people a, a great set of tram lines. But I do find a lot of the time, it seems to be about creating space for change to happen by accident. <laughs> there's, a, there's almost like this well, if I pay undivided attention to someone and I, if I just gently query them and I create a bit of space, then, then by magic, you know, transformation is going to happen. And sometimes it will. You know, sometimes people given that attention and reflection and everything else will, will make profound changes. But, but generally, those kind of models are very, very passive and very, very cerebral, very, very cognitive. You know, think about it this way, think about it that way. And, and you know, if, if thinking about it was the route to change, we wouldn't have any problems in the first place. We're all pretty good at ruminating. So, you know, I, I think, yeah, that, that's the distinction for me. NLP is an ability rather than, you know, a, a model. And for those people who develop that ability, it, it is absolutely extraordinary what can be achieved. One last point really is that because that ability is, is so rarely fully developed, people just don't know what's possible. You know, people do not realise how brilliantly and amazingly they can change without hours of catharsis and crying or without you know programs that last three months six months you know ch change can happen really really quickly but because there are so few change agents that can do it quickly th then of course you know the mainstream belief is people have to be ready for change and it takes a long time i would absolutely agree with that coming back to to you in your role as a, a coach and I know that you've been a leader in a number of different businesses but you've also coached leaders as well so from everything that you've done and, and I guess the current context you know just coming out of COVID as we are what do you think are some of the key challenges leaders face the world's always been tricky but it, it seems to be more of a a messy hairball than ever before. I think there are a couple of ideas that I'd love to explore quickly, if that's all right. The idea of, you know, VUCA, uh, which is a, uh, was coined, I think, in the 80s as a way of describing, you know, uh, volatility, uncertainty. I can't remember the C off the top of my head. Complexity and ambiguity. So the idea is, you know, it's the world's volatile, it's complex, it's messy. We, we, we really don't have all the answers or we don't even have all the questions, you know. And it's really kind of thought of generally as, isn't that terribly inconvenient? And, and how can we make the world less VUCA? And, but but I, don't, I don't know if I agree with that. I think the world is VUCA. You know, the world has always been VUCA. And really, from a leadership point of view, our challenge is to, you know, when you don't know all the facts, when there are no clear right or wrong answers or, or actions to take, can you still make a decision and communicate that influentially and, and help people and guide people forwards? You know, that's really the, the question. And, and, and sadly, I find the answer to that a lot of the time is no, for a couple of reasons. One is that we, we've entered a, a phase where data from last week is, is more valued than any kind of wisdom about what might happen next year. 
you know, it, everything is, is so focused on what is immediately measurable and defendable and justifiable and evidenceable. And, uh, and we think that's cleverness and it's the opposite. We, we can't solve tomorrow's problems with nostalgia and what happened last week doesn't necessarily tell us what's going to happen next week. So, so I think, you know, and, and it has led to this culture of over-promoted managers, you know, people who essentially, I mean, and this isn't, I don't mean this to sound derogatory about managers. Management is a fantastic skill, but it's different to leadership. You know, leadership is very much about tomorrow, whereas management is about today and getting stuff done. And, and they're fundamentally different. So we don't like complexity, even though that's the way the world is, whether we like it or not, because we're trying to button things up and, and everything needs to be referenced by data and knowable and neat and tidy, which so of course that leads us to a particular type of lunacy. But the other part of this, and this is the real pickle, this is the thing where I've failed like several times in aligning people, you know, failed culturally, failed strategically, is that some leaders are sort of almost conditioned or have a way of thinking, which is hierarchical, let's say, a bit sort of status driven. And I don't mean that in a, a you know horrible way. I just mean that they like a bit of clarity about who's in charge, who's driving the bus, you know, and, and they have these kind of like ways of operating that kind of fit their management paradigm. Very much like the idea of a, uh, if you imagine a post-industrial revolution, you know, factory where, you know, you have those kind of clear hierarchies. Uh, and of course, you know, the more we work in a knowledge economy and the more we don't sort of work on production lines, the more lunacy that is you know i mean we, we manage things but we lead people and, and when we start managing people it's all a bit it's all a bit pickly so so some people like to be driven by having that clarity and status and, and uh, talk about who's your line manager and dotted lines to so and so and whatever else well they're the kind of people when you're in a meeting you know they'll say well you know julian thinks that this quarter is all about so and so you know i'm thinking who's julian you know what, what on earth are you talking about so they're very, very sort of statusy and hierarchical. Other people are motivated much more about outcomes. You know, they don't really give a crap who's in the room or what the job title is. The question is, can we get this done? You know, have we got the right people? Have we got the right team? Is everyone rowing in the same direction? So, so if we think about these, these two types of leader, if you like, more kind of a, an outcome leader who ignores status and hierarchy and tradition and just wants to, to get the job done, this is the kind of... I suppose, you know, synonymously, you would think of tech startups and agile businesses when you think of it that way. And then you've got sort of much more buttoned up and road mapped, measured, accounted, you know, line managed ways of doing things. Now, the problem is this, the fundamental problem, which is if you have someone who's driven by status and, and hierarchy and clarity, they don't see the other style of leadership as leadership. They think you're being woolly and ambiguous and confusing and unprofessional and, and soft in the way that you know, Donald Trump would never recognize Obama as a leader. He just thinks he's weak. So that's a fundamental challenge, really fundamental challenge. And I remember one culture I was working in where in the boardroom, the, the universal agreement was the business needed to move to a position of more reliability. It needed to be more reliable in what it did. And the board was split between these two different ethoses or styles of leadership so so the consequence of that was when we talked about reliability you know half the board heard you know give people more 
autonomy, give them more ownership, focus more on the outcomes, make sure that that we deliver what we're supposed to deliver come hell or high water and we can flag things, feedback upwards, everyone can uh, rally around and get stuff done, you know. So, so it was really about ownership and autonomy and and clarity and, and that kind of thing. The other half of the board heard double down on process, you know, make more prescriptive processes, create less opportunities for failure by being more prescriptive about what's right and wrong. And, and, and the most, most worrying thing is sometimes you don't detect that fundamental mismatch of, of communication in the room. You find out two months later when you've all gone away and done completely different things and then you frown at each other. So th- I think that's kind of the biggest challenge. And, and obviously, you know, both, both are valid, both are true. The, the world of aviation is a really great example of constantly refining and improving processes and not being ambiguous about it and, and not going, hey, be agile when you're, you know, 2,000 feet, you know, make it up as you go along. Yeah, who knows? Maybe try the other round, <laughs> the other runway today. There is validity in both approaches, which is that outcomes are the most important thing. And, and the more you trust and give people ownership and the less you micromanage them, the, the far better they'll perform. The other side of the coin is you do need some kind of parameters and you need some clear process. Otherwise, you are setting yourself up for failure. So, so of course, you know, somewhere in between the two is the answer. But, but when you have those kind of differences of opinion, people polarize each other. So, so then they'll, they'll emphasize their, their ethos or perspective more heavily and become even more, uh, or disregard the other perspective even more vehemently, which is a bit of a pickle. That was a long answer to a short question. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was absolutely fine because it described it beautifully, didn't it? And as you were speaking there, what was coming up for me, bringing it back to NLP again, that's what NLP does, is it, is it, it starts with you as the person, you as the leader, and recognising where where you lean towards so are you the status and hierarchy or are you the outcomes based or does it depend on the situation but actually recognizing that recognizing the benefits and and the the negatives of both and then making a decision about what you want to do but if you don't have that self-awareness in the first place that's when the polarization comes isn't it it suddenly doesn't become a business that we're talking about it becomes about the person and my NLP journey certainly took me on that ability to see things as they are not how my brain filters want me to see it and I you know I really want the world to be like me and it's not everybody is different and being able to appreciate that difference and take the strength from each and bring that together is for me one of the fundamentals of leadership I agree my hero agrees with me how fantastic is is that so if you were coaching a leader that that came to you and you could very clearly identify they sat in one particular camp how would you work with them what would you do to help them open up their awareness and maybe start to appreciate other perspectives yeah good question I I think looping back to the, the answer I just gave you about you know very different styles of, of leadership, one being more managery and the other being a bit more leadery, if you like, almost. You know. If someone is a bit more managery, I, I was on, a, I was on a, a workshop the other day and people talked about, it was a, a cognitive behavioral thing and people were talking about tolerating ambiguity. It's almost like all of the VUCA stuff 
you, you need to learn to tolerate it rather than learning that that's actually how the world is. So we will, we will try and work out, okay, what can I control and what can I not control and control the controllables and influence the influenceables and, and let go of the other stuff. Whereas I'd, I'd be far more inclined to help them to recognize the illusion of control. You know, we can influence by all means, but there are very few things that we can absolutely prescriptively control. And, and I think thinking that we can control is what creates this slightly pathological, you know, blinded to the reality uh, leadership. Because we're in the spreadsheet, we're in the paradigm, we're in the, the project plan and the roadmap, and we're not in the room. So I, I think, yeah, from that point of view, there's a, you can loosen that view up by looking at just getting people to embrace the reality of the world. And, and incidentally, you know, uh, for some people, this is, this is deeply challenging. It's just really not easy. For people who are a bit more agile and a bit more leadery and a bit more, you know, just focus on the outcome and focus on you know, leading through others. And, and There's a lovely quote, isn't there? I, I forget, I whoever said this, I apologise. Real leaders don't create followers, they create more leaders. So that kind of like developmental delegation and, and the ability to sort of succeed through others and, and constantly be looking at every situation as an opportunity for growth you know, your own or other people's. The other side of that coin is, okay, by all means, developmentally delegate and encourage people to push themselves out of their comfort zone a little more and just focus on the vision and the outcome. And But I think the other side to that coin is that people will unravel, you know, with that degree of flexibility. So, so you do need to become clear about what you want, clear about what is, you know, what is okay and what isn't as, a, as an output. And and clear about making sure that they know how to do it and they know exactly what they're being asked for and they know why they're being asked for it and etc and, and i think sometimes if you if you focus on the more agile way of doing stuff it's all about outcome you know and, and it's all about making sure that we're equipped with what we need and then just go for it you know and 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 i think the important thing to recognize is that some people not only won't thrive under those conditions they'll actually implode so yeah, they're the two sides of the coin. You know, agile agile leaders can be too ambiguous, and leaders who are a bit more managementy can suffocate people and, and certainly not get the best out of them because it's just a little bit too reined in. That's great, and I hear what you're saying about the different types of leaders. And so, I guess what I'd like to understand is that if we look at the higher education sector which typically tends to be quite hierarchical and structured and decisions by committee if there are listeners thinking this is great I see myself as an agile outcome-based leader but I'm working in this environment that is quite challenging and structured what would you say great to them? question I mean, I think if it were if it were me, if I were tasked with shifting the leadership behavior of a team who were culturally embedded in a very hierarchical world, I think rather than trying to convince them or tell them there's another way of doing stuff, because it would be quite alien to them. I think that the first thing I do is, is try to find a way for them to experience the other way of doing stuff, you know, in an environment where that does work. Is there a technological organization or a, an innovative, progressive, agile organization that they could do some kind of a cultural exchange with? Is there some way that they can experience other ways of leading and see that they do work so that they can begin to shift their mindset and explore themselves how they could potentially take a different perspective? Because I think 
the thing I have learned is if someone has a particular paradigm saying, hey, try this instead, and here's some evidence to back it up, makes pretty much no difference <laughs> whatsoever. It, it would be about creating an experience of the alternative. I love that, creating an experience of the alternative. So, you know my world, it's the fish climb trees world, so I have two fishy questions for you. When have you had to dive deep? Wow, <laughs> I appear to be doing it now. I think the example I gave earlier, where finding myself without my normal powers of influence culturally, because of differences in mindset, and the only way out of that pickle is to stop a bit and, and examine your own mindset. And, and work out okay these people that I'm interacting with I think that they are being closed-minded so for me to think that how am I being closed-minded you know how am I how am I fueling this inability to align by by taking a, a stance myself and, and what can I do to open my mind to maybe what's going on for them in a way that would give me more flexibility or latitude and and, and that's kind of tricky because you've got to dig deep into why do I think the way I do how could it be wrong you know, what are, what are the counter examples? When does my way of thinking not work? Which is helpful and uncomfortable. <laughs> I always say, you know, it's our successes in life that limit us, not our failures. You know, we, we, we do something, we fail, we think, oh, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> Whoops. And uh, we, we experiment, we try something new. But when we're successful, we start to hang on to that stuff. You know, we, we hang on to those ways of doing things that are that have got great results for us in the past. And, and, and in some ways we link them to identity. And then when we're in a, in a situation where those, those things that worked for us previously no longer work, we're kind of all at sea. We're sort of out of options really, which is a fantastic opportunity for growth if, if we're able to see it that way. From everything you've said this morning, what's coming up for me is that ability to stop feeling like we have to control everything and that our way is the right way. And if we can let go of that, then we open our minds up to the, the art of the possible, really. We've talked about diving deep. When have you felt like a fish that climbed a tree? Oh, wow. What a great question. So I, I didn't do very well academically, you know, when I was young. Uh, I had to kind of come along later and, and, and gather a bit more credibility in, in, in that way. So, you know, I kind of flunked out at A-level, never went to university. Well, actually, I never went to, to A-levels, which is probably why I didn't go well. I, I didn't go the academic route. And then I, I ended up being an entrepreneur, as you say, and, and sort of working in various places and then starting my own business. And, and, it, and it became very successful, you know, for someone in their 20s, kind of build a business from your parents' dining room table and turn it over more than a million pounds a year. And, and I sort of had that imposter syndrome. I had that feeling that, oh, this can't be right. Surely I'm going to get caught out. You know, surely someone's going to come along and say, no, I'm sorry, Daryl, you're not qualified to uh, to be leading a successful business. And uh, that's how my self-development journey started. It was driven by my imposter syndrome. I wanted to I wanted to make sure that I really did know what I was doing with these people's careers <laughs> and that they, they were actually back in the right horse in uh, in choosing to help me with whatever venture it is that I was that I was on at the time. So, so I started that sort of personal development journey and I did a postgrad in strategic management and then I and then I discovered NLP like you. It changed my world. And I, I got obsessed with it. I became an NLP nerd. It, it was it was an absolute obsession and I sort of climbed the 
the tree of uh, collecting certificates and did the practitioner and the master practitioner and so on and became a trainer of NLP. But when I was being a trainer or learning to be a trainer, I was trained by a guy called John Grinder, who's the linguist I mentioned earlier, who was one of the co-creators of this whole undefinable field of, of whatever you want to call it. I remember at the time I, I kind of had a go at writing my first book as well, which was which felt like a, a big challenge for me. And within a fairly short space of time, I, I finished the book. I got it published really, really quickly. And then John Grinder agreed to endorse it. And, and in fact, that was the beginning of a, a relationship of about four years where he kind of mainly by email mentored me. And, and that was the really, really transformational thing. That was the bit where I was a trainer of NLP. I thought I knew what, what I was doing. And, and the next four years were, were extraordinary. That, that kind of one-to-one -one attention and picking apart ideas with incredible precision. I owe him a debt that I would never be able to pay, pay back in this lifetime. And he, and he was extraordinarily generous. So, so I think I had imposter syndrome, as a lot of people do. And I remember when I got my book published and it got endorsed, it felt like well, there was a physical change. It felt like that imposter syndrome was just gone. I'd kind of ticked enough boxes and, and achieved enough successes in my life to, to be able to let it go. And now I find it hard to remember not being good enough. Can't access those thoughts or feelings. But I, but I know for sure that, that in my sort of 20s, they, they drove me. They were the biggest thing going on. What a momentous tree to climb and one that many of us are on that journey to do. And your book, I got it when, when I went on that NLP course. It's called Can We Start Again? And I would recommend that if anyone is interested in knowing more about NLP or just exploring it, they give this book a read. Because even now, 20 years on, I still refer to some of those words of wisdom. Thank you so much for today. Thank you for sharing what NLP means and, and having a little bit of a, a deep dive into, into leadership. So how can people connect with you, find out more? DarylScott.com, D-A-R-Y-L-L-S-C-O-T-T, -L -L -T, unusual spelling. That, that's where I'm at. And you can find books and talks and links and, and whatever else there if you want to go and have a look. We'll put all that, that in the show notes for people. Thank you once again. How would you like to close out the show? Oh, what an invitation. Well, I'm going to go with this, actually. This is my coaching studio here, and I have on, on the wall in neon, I have uh, the problem is never the problem. Because the problem is how you think about it. The problem is, you know, that you get yourself into a pickle when, when you try to approach where the problem is. The problem isn't in that meeting. The problem is the fact that you've been ruminating all night. And then as you go to walk into that meeting, you get yourself in a right old state. And I just find it really interesting. Like one of the things people often say when, when it comes to sort of making changes is they'll say, look, okay, I, I can change how I feel, but the problem will still be there. The problem will still exist, you know, in reality, which is a fair challenge, a good challenge. And, and I think it's because we fail to notice that, okay, the problems may exist, but our capacity to deal with them fundamentally changes. And, and we know that, you know, on a good day, you, nothing can break your stride. And on a bad day, everything seems like a nightmare. And, but, but I think we just underestimate that variable, you know, of how we show up, you know, the level of difference it can make. There's a, a Harvard Business Review that says that an inspired person outperforms a satisfied person by two and a half times, 250% change in effectiveness. Now, can you find any other variable in business or any other field 
that gives you a 250% uplift in performance. We have the capacity to change. And when we change, the, the systemic impact of that, the immediate impact, can be really, really dramatic. And for some reason, we humans sort of underestimate our capacity to change, and we underestimate what will happen if we do. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Dive Deep, Climb High podcast with me, Mel Luizu. To help build our community of leadership listeners, please leave me an Apple podcast five-star review. Remember, our fishy adventure doesn't have to end here. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram and Twitter. Links are in the show notes. Dive deep, climb high, can-do leadership in a world of can't.